That is chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are un unprofitable and useless. Warn it to visit person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. That will help. And normally to have that passage open in front of you as we work our way through it. Excellent. Uh, how many of you have seen this movie? Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty good. I'm going to get the clicker. Okay. Uh, I'm glad that movie is now almost 20 years old, maybe 21 years old. So, uh, 1996. So, older than many people in this room. Uh, but, if you've seen it, that's all you need to know. Uh, Saving Private Ryan, the movie is set, if you haven't seen it, set in World War II. And the plot is that there's this family and uh, four brothers in the war. Uh, three of them are killed around the same time and their mother is due to receive uh, all three telegrams uh, reporting, uh, telling her of their deaths uh, on the same day. And so uh, as an act of compassion, uh, they, uh, the army sends a small rescue squad uh, into action uh, to try and find the fourth and uh, final Ryan brother and uh, bring him out. That's why it's called Saving Private Ryan. Uh, the movie is a movie about hope and purpose in the face of war. Now, it's a Hollywood film, so spoilers, uh, they get him out alive. And along the way, several of the, the team uh, are killed as uh, they try and get Private Ryan home to safety. 
And in the final scene of the film, if you remember it, uh, we see a much older Private Ryan, uh, and he turns to his wife and he says, Tell me I've lived a good life. Uh, tell me I'm a good man. After everything that was done for him, uh, he wants to know, he wants to know that uh, he's had a good life. And that's really our question for uh, tonight. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean to live a good life? Uh, here, time after time, in Titus, uh, we see that God's people are told to devote themselves to doing what is good. Here's our key verse, our verse 8. I want you to stress these things so that those who are trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Uh, Paul tells, uh, is writing this letter and he tells Titus uh, exactly uh, what to teach uh, the Christians on Crete uh, in order for them to live a good life. He says, stress these things, uh, these things that are excellent and profitable for everyone. Uh, stress them so that uh, those people are devoted to doing what is good. Uh, so here is uh, the logic of it. Uh, well, here we go. <laughs> Is that work? Ineffective. Wait, what How do I do this? Is this? I don't know what these slides. Do the unbutton. Oh, I'm going to um, hand this back to Rachel. She's going to do it for me. Oh, whoa. Yeah, anyway. Alright, I'm going to go like this. <laughs> Anyway, there will be a kind of a thing telling you where we're going to go. Uh, here's where we're going to go. Profitable teaching leads to profitable lives. That's uh, what we're going to unpack tonight. Profitable teaching leads to profitable lives. We will get to the baby nuts. <laughs> Okay, so the, the logic of the passage is profitable teaching leads to profitable lives. And uh, that's what we want to think about. What does it mean to live a profitable life, a good life? Uh, to start with, we're going to think about profitable teaching, though. Uh, what is this profitable teaching uh, that Paul is talking about. Well, it's the teaching about salvation. Verse 5. Uh, he saved us. That is the saved is the key verb in this whole section. Uh, the profitable teaching is salvation. And it's in contrast to verse 9. Uh, what's he not going to do? Uh, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. See, the contrast there is to clickbait, right? The, the ducks. Just these things, these topics that generate, uh, you know, controversy for, for no reason. Uh, let's have the baby ducks. Uh, so this is clickbait, right? Uh, baby ducks see water for the first time. Can you believe what they do? They have a drink. That's it. <laughs> the answer. Uh, next one. Uh, air pollution. 
Now, leading cause of lung cancer. Here's a tip. Don't scroll down to the comments on stuff like that. They're just, they're just trying to get you uh, upset, create controversy. And the Christian world has these clickbait topics as well. Uh, things that people like to talk about, uh, to be edgy, to get tongues wagging. You know, was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene? Uh, questions about uh, science and evolution. Uh, questions about technology. Christians shouldn't use social media. Will there be pets in heaven? All these kind of hypothetical questions that even if you resolve them, no one's got anywhere. No one's grown in godliness. No one knows God better. Now, you might be thinking, okay, so... Teaching is meant to be about salvation, and that's profitable, that's good, but won't it get boring if every time you come to church, uh, it's just another sermon about salvation, the same thing over and over. Imagine, imagine that. Uh, but in answer to that, I give you Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. These five magnificent verses about how God has saved us. Only five verses, but we could really dive into them and unpack them for weeks and weeks. And we're going to go through it now, but we're only really going to scratch the surface of what we can think about in terms of what has God done to save us. Anyway, let's have a look. Next slide. Uh, we're going to look at this salvation that God has won for us. And we're going to think about uh, who it comes to, uh, what it comes from, who it comes through, and what it comes for. There are four points, and I'm just going to uh, race through them nice and quick. So firstly, uh, who does salvation come to? Uh, read verse 3 with me. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. The salvation comes to detract and the guilty. Both of those things are true. It, it's like where uh, the crew of a pirate ship, at the same time, are both uh, captive and culpable. Uh, deceived by uh, greed and evil desires, trapped on this, uh, this ship, uh, but still willing participants, part of the venture and the evil that it contains. Now, sometimes uh, it doesn't feel like that, does it? You know, life in Australia is pleasant, uh, we seem to be relatively safe, it doesn't feel like this dreadful pirate ship type existence. But I think you can still see something of the reality of that if you scratch the surface. Take gambling, for instance. Uh, Australians gamble more than anyone else in the world, and it's not even close. Australians lose uh, almost twice as much per head uh, than the next closest country. And at some level, that is driven by, by greed, by envy, a passion for selfish gain. Uh, and it enslaves us. One of many things that enslaves us, and it's just one example. And salvation comes to the trapped and the guilty captive and culpable. Where does salvation come from? That's a pretty dire situation to be in. Where does salvation come from? Well, verse 4. 
But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. Salvation comes from God's mercy, His character, His kindness, His love. Verse 7, by His grace, God's heart is the source of our salvation. It comes from there. Uh, this is a picture of the Taj Mahal on the next slide. Uh, the Taj Mahal is famous because it's born out of love. It's actually uh, a massive tomb. Um, uh, a man by the name of Shan Jahan built it uh, out of uh, love for his wife, Mumtaz Mahal. He loved her so much that when she died, he was heartbroken, legend goes, that he uh, went into seclusion for a year and came out his hair white and uh, his back bent and he had this uh, building uh, built for his wife because he loved her so much. Uh, God doesn't build us uh, a monument. His love causes him to send his son. We're told the kindness and love of God appeared when Jesus came that's where salvation comes from. Who does salvation come through? Last week in chapter 2 of Titus, we saw that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, we read that Jesus uh, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. That's who salvation comes through, uh, through Christ and his cross. Uh, the cross is where salvation is achieved, but... Jesus' death needs to be applied to us personally. And so, here in chapter 3, Paul can say uh, that salvation comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Washing, rebirth, they are spiritual metaphors to describe what happens uh, when someone receives the Holy Spirit. We were spiritually dead towards God. And the Spirit comes and regenerates us, makes us alive again, born again, made new on the inside. And it's described as a washing, a washing of rebirth. We were spiritually unclean. And the Spirit comes and washes us clean. That's why uh, Christians have baptisms as a picture of that, the physical acting out of what happens uh, when the Holy Spirit uh, works to bring salvation in someone. The water doesn't uh, do anything, doesn't literally make you alive or even clean. Uh, Unichurch baptisms are normally in Swan River, so that's more likely to make you dirty and or lead to your untimely death. But it's a picture, isn't it? It's a picture of what is happening spiritually. As the person comes up out of the water, and the water beads off them, they are washed, made alive. Washed and reborn by the Holy Spirit. Salvation comes to desperate people, trapped and guilty. It comes from the heart of God, from his love. It comes through 
the work of the Holy Spirit. And finally, what does salvation come for? Uh, well, Rico said it to me. It comes so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. See, the result of God's salvation is to make us heirs. Next slide. This is a picture of Bill Gates. Uh, still, the world's richest man, uh, clocking in at a net worth of $86 billion, and he has three children, uh, all of them heirs. And uh, to be an heir means you stand to inherit uh, that wealth. Uh, except for the Gates' children, uh, they won't. Uh, because uh, Bill and Melinda Gates are in the process of giving it all away, uh, they're out to find a cure for malaria, and among other things, and they plan to give away most of it. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, we don't need to feel bad for the kids. They are theirs. I think they'll be well taken care of. Uh, but that's what it means to be an heir. Uh, you receive an inheritance uh, from your parents. And unlike Bill Gates, God is going to give us everything. Everything he has. And what does he have to give? Only everything. Uh, God will give himself life eternal with him. Our hope is eternal life with God. Secured by that salvation that comes to us when we didn't deserve it, trapped and guilty, that comes from God's love for that lost world, that comes through the work of his Holy Spirit and comes for our eternal good. That is God's salvation. That's this profitable teaching that Titus is to pass on and to stress. And so I think that needs to be true of us as well as a church. We must be a salvation people, a church that teaches the gospel of salvation by Jesus' death through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's really important to remember, really important to remember, especially in a materialistic culture where eternal life and salvation seem like alien concepts. Like, why would you ever think about that stuff? And even for us, we might prefer... uh, teaching that seems practical or really immediate. But uh, we shouldn't feel bad. We shouldn't feel bad for talking about salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we won't be any practical good at all unless we do stress salvation. Because, remember, the point of this chapter, profitable teaching leads to profitable lives. Verse 8, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You only end up doing what is good, living a good life, when you have stressed the teaching of salvation that gives us birth in the first place. So, profitable teaching leads to profitable lives for God's people. So, Next question. What does doing good look like? Uh, Well, it's there in verse 1. Have a read of that with me. Uh, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Uh, 
Next slide, thanks, Rachel. Uh, that verse, verse 1, reminds you to be subject to rulers. It's uh, talking about uh, the Christian's attitude, or the way that the Christians were to treat the government. Uh, they were to be good citizens. Good citizens. And that was striking on Crete. Uh, the island of Crete was taken by the Romans in 67 BC, and uh, as Aussies, we understand as an island nation, just like Crete, we understand that we don't like people coming in telling us what to do. Uh, they didn't like it anymore. Uh, they hated it. They hated the Romans being there and were constantly mounting insurrections trying to get rid of them. But in that context, even for someone from Crete to become a Christian meant to be a good citizen, to keep uh, the laws of the land, to pay taxes, to respect copyright laws, to obey the road signs. Uh, that's the call for us as well. Uh, it's kind of boring, unimpressive type stuff to do. It slows you down. Uh, but that's what it involves, being a good citizen. We shouldn't scorn those things. God thinks they're good. I distinctly remember uh, as a teenager travelling in the car with my dad and uh, just being astonished at how slow you could drive. Uh, just, uh, there's a picture of my recollection of what my dad uh, looked like when he was driving. <laughs> just like that. Man. Uh, now, partly he drove like that by disposition, and that's hereditary. That is now a picture of me driving along. Uh, but it was also a Christian decision to be a good citizen. To consider other people in society, to consider the authorities, and to respect them as he ought. Uh, but more than that, Christians are to be ready to do whatever is good. This expansive uh, finish to that verse. Uh, Christians are to be ready to do whatever is good. And I think that's about actively making our society a better place. Uh, next slide. Uh, Tim Keller had a remarkable ministry in uh, New York City with Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And one of the lasting impacts of his ministry there was something called Hope for New York. Uh, it started in 1992 as a way of organising uh, Redeemer volunteers to go and volunteer at uh, soup kitchens, uh, legal aid centres, uh, homeless shelters, those kind of things throughout the city. By last year, it was giving away $1.4 million in grants organising 43,000 volunteer hours and uh, serving 1.6 million people across the city. Now, Redeemer Presbyterian, huge church, that's, that's a massive scale. But even on a smaller scale, uh, churches everywhere ought to be doing things like that. Here at New Church, one way we try and serve our community is through the Red Frogs ministry, uh, caring for those uh, at risk because of drugs and alcohol. Christians are to be ready to do whatever is good. Uh, Redeemer Presbyterian got themselves ready. Uh, ready to serve. To serve in humble ways. Uh, eager to give their time and money. Christians are to be good citizens in the way they obey authorities and in the way they serve society. Also, 
Christians are to be good neighbours. Have a look at verse 2. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. That verse is talking about how we treat other people around us, uh, in our neighbourhood. And doesn't that look like a good neighbour right there? Someone who is considerate. Uh, someone who is always gentle with people around them. Uh, Leanna and I once lived in a house where uh, one of the neighbours wasn't on speaking terms with uh, three others around us. And that just shouldn't be the case for those who trust in God. If we've been washed and reborn, our mark should be gentleness. It should be uh, being considerate, making peace if there's a flare-up. Now, that should be what we're about. What does that look like in practice? Well, it might mean refusing to enter into gossip uh, or bullying. It might mean something as simple as turning the music down. It might be making a meal for someone. It might be apologising where we're in the wrong or extending forgiveness where we have been wronged. Now, if you do that, probably you won't be known as the alpha male uh, of the area, of your class, yeah, whatever the female equivalent of an alpha male is, you won't be known as that either. And yes, you might be walked on sometimes. People might presume on that. That's okay. That's what we're saved for. To have a life of doing good, good citizens, good neighbours. A life that uh, does whatever is good and is devoted to that because of what God has done for us. Uh, we started off uh, with Private Ryan. I think... Yep, one more. We're back there. Uh, started off uh, with the movie. And at the end, he's, he's looking back at his life and hoping uh, that his life was good. And that story, I think, bears some similarity to what we've been thinking about tonight. Uh, some similarities, but one big difference. The similarity lies in the fact that Private Ryan's life was given to him at great cost, even though he didn't deserve it. Uh, not because of anything he'd done. And his response to that was to live a good life. And that does seem to be the logic of this passage too. The response to being saved is to devote yourself to doing what is good. But uh, the big difference is in the motivation. The big difference is in the motivation. See, Private Ryan doesn't lead a good life out of joyful obedience, but out of a deep sense of obligation, this sense of debt. Uh, I think that's why it's such a great movie, because uh, that uh, must have been what it felt like to come back to be one of the survivors of World War II. Uh, in the movie, in the kind of epic final battle on the bridge, uh, Captain Miller, the Tom Hanks character, uh, Captain Miller, uh, who's the leader of this rescue squad, he dies, and with his final breath, pulls Private Ryan in close, and he whispers to him, earn this, earn this. And that's the key point in the movie. And in that final scene, uh, with Brian, now old, uh, he visits the grave of Captain Miller and he says this. He says, every day 
I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that, in your, at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. And then he turns to his wife in tears and says, Tell me I've had a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. So you live with this, this burden, this burden to earn what had been given to him. And it seems like he, he lived with this unspoken dread that it wouldn't be enough, that he could never know, he could never be certain if he had done enough to pay back that debt. But God's salvation is not like that. It's not a debt that we do good to, to pay off. It's not a debt we repay with our good works. But it is a new life. A new life freely given by God. We have been reborn by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the Christian life, the Christian uh, motivation for doing good is one of joyful obedience to live out that transformation that God has worked in us, that has always, already been secured for us. And that's why we need the profitable teaching of salvation. That needs to come first. Because with the profitable teaching of salvation, we can rest assured in the love that God has for us. And that will lead to profitable life doing good in our world and uh, among our neighbours. God has shown great kindness to us in all of that, in the salvation he's won for us. Let's go and do good because of what he's made.